Now, if you were to guess which chapter of the Old Testament is most frequently quoted by the authors of the New Testament, you might start with God's promise to Abram in Genesis 12. Or you might jump ahead to God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And, and if not one of those, you, you would pretty easily guess Isaiah 53 has got to be it, right? The, the, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. Uh, these are key passages that the New Testament story is built on. Uh, surely one of those would be the most quoted chapter in the New Testament. But if you guess one of those, none, none of those are correct. None of those would be the right answer. What you'd probably be surprised to learn is that the answer is actually the 110th Psalm. Psalm 110. You can open your Bibles there this morning. One commentator has counted as many as 27 quotations of or allusions to this Psalm in the New Testament Scriptures. When the New Testament authors came across Psalm 110, it exploded off the pages to them as they uh, saw the gospel of Jesus Christ in Psalm 110. Why is that? What is it about this psalm that distinguishes it and, and made it stand out from the rest of the Old Testament scriptures? Well, I think the answer is that more than any other chapter of the Old Testament, Psalm 110 proclaims the manifold mysteries of the gospel. It proclaims the manifold mysteries of the gospel. But by mystery, I don't mean that the gospel is mysterious. Biblically, mystery refers to things that were hidden that have now been revealed. Things that once were a mystery, but now that mystery has been made known. And Psalm 110 proclaims these gospel mysteries to us that have now been revealed in Jesus Christ. Psalm 110 proclaims mysteries about the Messiah, mysteries about the kingdom, mysteries about salvation. It's a short psalm, but it is packed full of manifold gospel mystery. Now for the original hearers of this psalm, that means there would have been much that they didn't understand. Much that remained veiled to them. They would have wondered what David meant as they waited for these mysteries to be revealed. But we don't have that problem today on this side of the cross. We can look back at Psalm 110 and we can see what it means. We can see what it pointed to. We sang show us Christ a few minutes ago because we come to the scriptures with the presupposition that they are all about Jesus. Jesus taught us to read our Bibles that way. And we're going to see Jesus in Psalm 110 today, but what I want to say this morning is that as you come to the Old Testament, knowing that you're going to see Jesus, it doesn't mean that the Old Testament loses any of its richness in showing Jesus to us. Well, let me use a real-life example here. It's summertime. There's a few blockbuster movies out this summer, and, and I don't want to spoil the ending of these movies for you. But one of them is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to spoil this for you. I will not tell you if Indy completes his quest or not. Another one's Mission Impossible, but again, I, I don't want to spoil it for you. I will not tell you if the mission is actually impossible or not. Now, if we're being honest... We know how these movies are going to end before we even watch them. There's no need for spoiler alerts on movies like these. We know who the hero is. We know how it's going to end, but we watch them anyways. Well, why is that? Well, it's because we love to see our heroes in action over and over and over. Well, I think this applies to how we come to the Old Testament scriptures as Christians. We know that the Old Testament is about Jesus. Jesus told us that. 
even as we come to the Old Testament, we come with an expectation that it will lead us back to the gospel. So why do we do it? Why do we read our Old Testaments? Well, we don't read them because we're looking for something new that we've never heard before. We read the Old Testament scriptures because our hearts are thrilled to see our Savior again and again and again in new, amazing ways. And I say all of this this morning for this reason. As we turn to Psalm 110, I pray that the Spirit uses this song to thrill your heart this morning with the mysteries of the gospel. I pray that as we unfold these mysteries yet again, that the Spirit compels your heart to joy in seeing your Savior again and again. And with that expectation, let's read Psalm 110, starting in verse 1. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. As you first read that psalm, it comes off mysterious, doesn't it? This psalm is all about David's Lord. I, I say this because we read in the psalm's heading that this is a psalm of David, and immediately David says, the Lord says to my Lord. So David's Lord is who David is writing about. And this morning what we're going to see are four mysteries about David's Lord. Four mysteries about this figure that we'll call David's Lord today. First, the identity of David's Lord. Who is David's Lord? The first phrase of Psalm 110 immediately raises questions in our minds as we hear the word Lord used twice. The Lord says to my Lord. We can cut through some of that confusion immediately if we recognize that these are actually two different words in the original language. If you look at your Bible, you'll likely see that all four letters of the first word Lord are capitalized. The Lord. This is the way that our English Bibles are seeking to represent the divine name of the Creator God, Yahweh. And so while King David is the author of this psalm, Yahweh, the Lord, is the speaker of this psalm as it begins. Yahweh says to my Lord. Who is Yahweh speaking to? David says he speaks to my Lord. That is my ruler, my master, my king. Yahweh speaks to my king, is what David is saying. But the question that we need to ask is, who is that? Who exactly is David's lord and master and ruler and king? Well, we know that it isn't the Lord, Yahweh, because Yahweh is the one speaking. He's not speaking to himself. We also know, because David was the king of Israel, that no one in Israel could have claimed to be David's ruler or master or king. So who is David talking about? Yahweh says to my lord. Well, as we've seen several times before in the Psalms, David's referencing the king that God promised would come from his descendants and his covenant with him. From 2 Samuel 7, God promised David 
that a son from his line would one day be established on the throne of God's kingdom. This son would reign forever over Israel. This coming king, this anointed son, this is who Yahweh is speaking to. The Lord says to my Lord. But we can't stop there. There's still something mysterious going on here. And it's actually Jesus himself who would draw out this mystery in his confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees. In Matthew 22, Jesus quotes from this psalm, and listen to what he says to the Pharisees. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. So so everyone agreed on this. The Christ is the son of David. The Messiah that was to come, the, the promised king from his line, 2 Samuel 7, that's the son of David. Jesus said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So Jesus is using Psalm 110 to press in to the true identity of this figure known as David's Lord. He's drawing out a truth that isn't very intuitive to us today as we live in a democracy and not a monarchy. So for us, we understand that in 1988, George H.W. Bush was the president of the United States. We also understand that in 2000, his son, George W. Bush, was the president. And we understand that once George the son was president, George the father was under the authority of George the son. No problems for us in a democracy. But that's not how monarchies work. In a monarchy, the kingdom is passed down from one generation to the next. And therefore, the son is never superior to the father. And if that's the case, then how could David ever say that his son is his Lord? By virtue of being the son of David, he could not be the Lord of David. He could not be his ruler and master and king if he was his son. Jesus pressed this question to the Pharisees to make them think about the identity of the Messiah, but he didn't answer the question when he asked it. We have to wait for the rest of the New Testament to unveil that mystery for us. And as we do, here's what we see. The reason David's son could also be David's Lord is because David's son was much more than a mere human son. Listen to how the New Testament describes the son of David. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is David's Son, and this is how David's Son could be David's Lord, because David's Son was the Son of God incarnate. David's son was the son of God incarnate. Who is David's Lord? Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, by whom all things were created, through whom all things are sustained, who entered into that creation by taking on human flesh and being born of a virgin into the line of David. That's David's son. That's David's Lord. 
And if this is who David's Lord is, then the most important question that you need to answer this morning is this. Is David's Lord your Lord? Is David's Lord your Lord? Have you made Jesus Christ your king? Have you submitted your life to him completely? Can you say with David, the Lord says to my Lord? Ben, you prayed this earlier. The reality is that each one of us is born with ourselves on the throne of our hearts. In our sin, we all live with ourselves as king. But the reality is that these little kingdoms are nothing more than fictions of our imagination. They're sandcastles that the waves are going to sweep away by the morning. No matter how much you might want to believe it, you are not the king of your life. Jesus, the Son of God, is the true and eternal king. And so submit yourself to him today. Pray to Jesus, you are my ruler, you are my master, you are my king, you are my Lord. This is the identity of David's Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this brings us to the second mystery of Psalm 110, the authority of David's Lord. The authority of David's Lord. So what is it that Yahweh says to David's Lord? Begin in verse 1. Sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. These are the words of Yahweh the king inviting the son of David to occupy the highest place of authority in his kingdom. Yahweh's on the throne and David's Lord is seated next to him as his vice-regent, as his right-hand man. This is just like as Pharaoh gave Joseph his signet reign and set him over all the land of Egypt. So Yahweh gives Jesus his authority to rule over all of his creation. Now David looked ahead to this when he wrote the words of Psalm 110, but today we look back on this moment. After Jesus died and rose again, he said to his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then he ascended to heaven, and after he did, Peter quotes this very verse in Psalm 110 to the crowds at Pentecost. It says that Jesus Christ is the one God has exalted to his right hand. Jesus Christ is the one to whom God says, sit at my right hand. Later, Paul describes the authority of Christ like this. God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that's named. Church, the New Testament is crystal clear on this point. Jesus reigns now. He's, he's reigning today. He's seated at God's right hand today, right now ruling over all creation with all authority at this very moment. Jesus is king today. And yet, it doesn't really seem like that when we look at our world today. The world is still broken, evil is still rampant, and it begs the question, how can you say that? How can you Christians say that Jesus reigns if the world is the way it is? This seems like a babysitter telling the parents, I've got everything under control, while one child is swinging from a chandelier, the other's throwing a tantrum, and the third one's putting the goldfish in the blender. Like, that babysitter does not have everything under control. That's a fiction. How can we say that Jesus reigns over a world that seems so out of control? Well, the second half of the Lord's declaration addresses this mystery. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here's the mystery of Jesus' authority. He truly, he truly reigns but the wicked have not yet been subjected to him. He has truly been given all authority, but he has not yet meted out that authority in judgment. 
This is what theologians refer to as the already not yet. In the language of Psalm 110, we live in the until. That's where we are today. Jesus is seated at God's right hand. Jesus' enemies are not yet his footstool. Verses 2 and 3 shed a little more light on what this already not yet reign of Jesus looks like. First, the already not yet is marked by the expansion of Jesus' reign into enemy territory. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. That's a description of the territory of Jesus' kingdom increasing, going out as his reign expands into the world. It begins from Zion, but it goes out into the nations. His, his, his rule is expanding, it's increasing, and yet, again, this increase of his kingdom doesn't wipe out the presence of his enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The already not yet is marked by the coexistence of his rule and those who rebel against his rule. He's ruling in the midst of his enemies. He's ruling and his enemies are still active. But look at verse 3. Not everyone's rebelling against Jesus. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. So while Jesus' throne is invisible today, we don't see him reigning on the throne. His reign is not invisible. His authority is not invisible. Where do we see evidence that Jesus reigns today? We see it right here, right now, in his people who gladly offer themselves to him. Verse 3 is describing us. Verse 3 is describing his people gladly offering themselves to the king's service. We are the ones who are offering ourselves freely to Jesus, our exalted king. The final lines of verse 3 are obscure, but I think the NIV translates it well. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Our service to Jesus during this already not yet is as sure as the early morning dew. We are his people ready to serve him. While rebels remain, we his people are ready and willing to live for the glory of his kingdom. To, to state all that a little bit differently in terms of New Testament theology, here's what all this means for us today. Again, it means Jesus reigns right now in the heavenly places. He exercises an invisible yet real authority over all things. It also means that his reign is manifested in the world through the church. We are the embassy of Jesus' kingdom in the world. The church is the embassy of the kingdom of God in the world today. We are the ones who are living out citizenship to his kingdom. And three, his reign is expanded into the rebellious world. How does that happen? Through our proclamation of the gospel. That reign expands through our proclamation of the gospel. And listen, this is why his reign is in the midst of his enemies. This is why he doesn't wipe out his enemies. It's so that his enemies might be saved. This is the mercy of King Jesus. He does not come and wipe out his enemies. He comes and he offers salvation to his enemies. And this is what we are offering ourselves to him to do, to go into our community and our region and our world as his ambassadors proclaiming that salvation is available to all who repent and trust in him. And so church, this morning I call you to renew your commitment to serve Christ and his kingdom in the already not yet. Offer yourself 
freely and anew to him. Offer yourself gladly to him. Say to Jesus today, use me to proclaim the good news of your gospel and advance your kingdom in this world to those who are still in rebellion against you. This is the mystery of the king's authority. There's one description about us that we've not touched on yet. It says that we will offer ourselves in holy garments. The people who offer themselves are people who have been made holy. And this leads us to the third mystery about David's Lord, the ministry of David's Lord. The ministry of David's Lord. David lived and wrote Psalm 110 as someone who was under the old covenant, who would have worshipped God through the mediation of priests. These priests came from the tribe of Levi, and they served in the tabernacle, and their role in Israel was to offer sacrifices for the people's sins, to give instruction to the people, and to intercede to God on behalf of the people. It was only through this priesthood that sinful Israelites could draw near and commune with the holy God. And this applied to King David, just like any Israelite. He was a king who needed a priest. However, the coming son of David, David's Lord, Jesus Christ, would not only have no need for a mediating priest, he himself would be a priest. Even more, he would be a far superior priest to the Levitical priests that served Israel at the time. Listen to what Yahweh says to David's Lord in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yahweh's words here in verse 4 can only be described as a solemn and binding declaration. Now whatever God says is true. God never lies. But sometimes he uses binding language to communicate to our hearts the reliability of his declarations. And so here is Yahweh's solemn, binding, reliable declaration. David's Lord is our eternal and sufficient priest. David's Lord is our eternal and sufficient priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, this is surprising and mysterious because, as we said, the priesthood in Israel belonged to the tribe of Levi, and yet the priesthood of David's Lord would be of an entirely different order. And, of course, to understand this, we need to answer the question, who exactly is Melchizedek? Well, he makes his lone appearance in redemptive history back in Genesis 14. Abram had received the covenant promises of God. Early on in his sojourning, he, he rescued Lot, his nephew, from a coalition of kings who had aligned themselves against him. And after defeating these kings with his men, the scripture tells us this. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek blessed Abram. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's about it. That's Melchizedek's only appearance in the story of Israel. And the question is, why would David, centuries later, say that the coming son of David would be a priest after the order of this briefly mentioned king? This remained a mystery for centuries until the author of Hebrews unveiled the mystery for us. His argument runs through several chapters in Hebrews 5 through 8, but this morning we're not going to read that, don't worry. I just want to summarize some of the most important points that the author of Hebrews makes for us about Melchizedek and his priesthood. First, his, his main point is that the Levitical priesthood was insufficient. 
That, that, that's the author's main point. The Levitical priesthood is insufficient. Those priests couldn't make atonement for sins because they themselves were sinners who were subject to death. The Levitical priesthood and the repeated sacrifices and the death of priests and the, and the need for new priests, all of this pointed to our need for a better priest. That's his main point. Now Melchizedek was a foreshadowing of this better priest. Some commentators go so far as to say Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself. That's possible, but the author of Hebrews specifically says he resembled the Son of God and that Jesus arose in the likeness of Melchizedek. So these words teach us that Melchizedek was a type of the one who was to come. Jesus fulfilled the pattern that Melchizedek lived out. Well, what was it about Melchizedek that Jesus fulfilled? Well, well, Melchizedek foreshadowed Jesus first by his mysterious origins. Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek had no genealogy. He was without father and mother, had neither beginning nor end. Now, we know nothing about where Melchizedek came from, what happened to him after he blessed Abram. And this mystery foreshadows the reality that Jesus is a priest of eternal origins. He's not a merely human priest He's the priest who existed from eternity past, and he's a priest who continues forever. He's our eternal priest. He never needs to be replaced. Melchizedek also foreshadowed Jesus as the king of righteousness and the king of peace. These are designations that the author of Hebrews uh, attributes to Melchizedek's name and his kingdom, the, the king of Salem, the king of peace. And, and Melchizedek means the king of righteousness, but it points to Jesus because Jesus is the true king of righteousness. Jesus is the king who offered himself for sinners so that sinners could be declared righteous. Jesus is the true king of peace who reconciles sinners to a holy God by bearing the wrath of God in our place. Through his priesthood, we're justified and we're reconciled. He's the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And finally, Melchizedek foreshadowed Jesus by receiving tithes from Abraham. Melchizedek mysteriously stood between God and Abraham in such a way that Abraham offered worship to God through Melchizedek. And this foreshadows Jesus, our eternal mediator. We offer all of our worship to God through him. Now that's a lot. It's a lot in Hebrews. It's a lot in this sermon. But here's the, the, the takeaway of all of that is, is that the ministry of David's Lord is that he's not only the king we need, he's the priest we need. In fact, the author of Hebrews concludes by merging Psalm 110 together in this way. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. What he's saying is, is that when Jesus the priest finished his priestly work, he sat down on the throne as king. Like the priestly king Melchizedek before him, Jesus is the eternal and sufficient king priest of God's people. And this matters today because at the very center of this psalm is this priestly ministry. Listen, apart from this, we could never enter the kingdom. Apart from Jesus' ministry as our priest, we can never enter his kingdom. It's his, it's his priestly work that cleanses us from our sin. And without it, we can never attain to the holiness that's required of citizens in the kingdom of God. Our, our culture takes God so lightly today. Scripture tells us, of course, that God is love. But our culture assumes that God is simply love. God is merely love. God is nothing but love. 
And our culture doesn't realize that God is also holy, holy, holy. So left in our unholiness, we could never enter the kingdom of God. But here's the good news of the gospel, is that this God of holy love provided a perfect priest in Jesus Christ. The eternal Son of God, sinless Son of Man, bridges the infinite gap between a holy God and sinful man. He removes our filthy rags and he clothes us in holy garments. And by doing that, through his cross, we can stand in righteousness in his kingdom. There's no other way into the kingdom. This whole psalm is about the king, it's about the kingdom, but there's no way into this kingdom apart from the priestly work of Jesus. I call you today to fully trust in the sufficiency of David's Lord, our king priest, Jesus Christ. We've seen his identity, we've seen his authority, we've seen his ministry. This brings us to one final mystery that has yet to be fully revealed, the victory of David's Lord. The victory of David's Lord. So when Psalm 110 begins, Yahweh says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When we come to verse 5, the time for those enemies to be made his footstool has arrived. And now we read this, the Lord is at your right hand. Now that the name Yahweh isn't used for a Lord here, all commentators agree that the reference in verse 5 is to Yahweh. Yahweh is at the king's right hand. The king was seated at God's right hand during the already not yet. Now God is at the right hand of the king, bringing his enemies under his feet. Though Christ rules today in the midst of his enemies, verses 5 and 6 tell us that a day is coming when he will finally and thoroughly judge his enemies. Look at what it says. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. What David's describing here is a truly terrible day. He calls it the day of his wrath. Have you ever felt upset or angered or maybe even outraged by evil in this world? If so, then you have a category to help you understand the wrath of God. God's wrath is nothing other than God's righteous anger toward evil. And because God is infinitely holy, and because evil is fundamentally against him as the creator God, this righteous anger calls forth his righteous judgment. And it is this judgment that David's Lord will execute across the earth. It will begin with the kings of this world's kingdoms. You know, history tells us that human kingdoms don't last forever. Powerful empires have fallen and they've been replaced with new empires, generation after generation. But on the day of judgment, it will not be one human kingdom being replaced by another human kingdom. On the day of judgment, every single human kingdom will fall and the kingdom of God will be the only kingdom in all the world. There will be no rebel kings anymore. The text then goes into graphic detail, telling us that the king will fill the nations with corpses. But as we think about that, don't picture an unjust slaughter of the innocent here. This is describing all of those who refused to repent during that already not yet period of his reign. All those who refused the invitation to be pardoned. This is describing all those who positioned themselves firmly as enemies of the king, 
Scripture tells us the wages of sin is death, and the death depicted here is only a mere picture of the never-ending judgment that awaits those who do not repent today. This day of judgment, though, will go beyond just the judgment of human rebellion. You see that our passage in the ESV says he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, but you might have a footnote in your Bible that gives this reading, he will shatter the head over the wide earth. He will shatter the head over the wide earth. That reading takes us all the way back to Genesis 3, when God cursed the enemy serpent in the garden and said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He will shatter the head over the wide earth. It's the head of the serpent the head of the spiritual forces of evil that God will ultimately make to be Jesus' footstool. And listen, the day of wrath will be a day when all evil is finally and decisively defeated. It will be a day when human sin and satanic opposition are fully eradicated. It will be a day when the world's wickedness is no more. In Psalm 110, Jesus is not only king, he's a priest king. He's not only a priest king, he's a warrior king, and he will defeat every enemy of his kingdom on that day. At the end of this work, look at the serene picture of verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. So Jesus will arise from his place at God's right hand. He will return and mete out the wrath of God in judgment on the wickedness of this world. And then verse 7 tells us, after he does, he will take a refreshing drink of water and lift up his head. That's a picture of the peace of his victory. That's a picture of the peace of final salvation. The victory has been won, and the king kneels down to drink. And when he does, we who have offered ourselves to him, we will see our king kneeling and drinking, and we will do the same. His victory will be our victory. His peace will be our peace. And with him, we will finally be refreshed and exalted in the kingdom of God. The mystery to all of this is that it hasn't happened yet. The mystery is that we still wait for this day. We don't know how long the Lord will delay. We don't know how long it is before he returns. We don't know how long until the not yet becomes part of the already. But we can say with Paul in Romans, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's nearer to us now than when we first believed. The victory of David's Lord will come. And so church, submit to him today be cleansed by him today, and serve him in the gladness of this hope of victory and eternal refreshment in his kingdom.